This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their seven-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. Hi, this is X, and welcome to another episode of the show. I've had the opportunity to get to know numerous photographers over the, the past eight years, and some of them I've been lucky enough to build friendships with. Though I haven't been lucky enough to meet today's guest in person, David Dushman is one of those photographers I've enjoyed reconnecting with periodically over the last several years. My appreciation for him goes beyond his skills as a photographer and writer, but as a person who is very thoughtful about art and life. I gain so much from his work in every conversation that I'm always excited to have the opportunity to share those with you on the show. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with David Dushman. Well, Dave, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. I think you're one of the most insightful, sincere, and honest photographers and, and writers about photographers that I, that I know. So I'm always, I always know that I'm in for a treat every time I have a chance to uh, sit down and talk with you. So, so welcome once again. Thank you. It's great to be back. Thanks for sending me a, a copy of your uh, of your latest book. I think it's really really interesting. It's very different from most of the other books, whether it's a hard copy or even a or a, a, an ebook. It's called the Visual Imagination: Ideas and Techniques for Creative Photographic Expression, and it's really interesting in, in that you talk a lot a lot about painting and and yeah. sort of the painterly aesthetic, which I completely get. But why was it that you feel, felt that you know, among amongst all the other books that you have written about the whole photographic process, why did you feel that you needed to write a book that was more about the links between, you know, working with a canvas with, you know, paints and oils and, and watercolors and so on, and a process that involves now more pixels and inks? Well, I think I think it was a couple of things. One, I think because they're essentially uh, very similar disciplines in the sense that they're both about visual design, they're both about... Um, I mean, the, the things that make a good painting are in many ways the things that make a beautiful photograph, you know, harmony and balance and, and the way we use color and that sort of thing. So that was certainly one of the reasons. The, 
I think probably the bigger reason was specifically I was beginning to study the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. And I have this particular love for them because around the time people like Monet came onto the scene, the art world uh, centered in Paris and specifically in the Paris Salon. And they had very specific ideas of what was a painting and what was not a painting. And the Impressionists came along and they, they sort of kicked against the rules and the ideas of what a painting was and was not. And um, it took them quite some time to gain any kind of acceptance. And now, of course, the Impressionists and, and subsequently the post-Impressionists like Van Gogh, their paintings are worth, you know, millions of dollars and and have received such a, a great reception and continue to be some of the most popular pieces of art in the world. And, and, and I think I resonate most with all of that because in the photography world, in the popular photography world, we, we are very big on rules. And I love the idea of discarding those rules or not even signing up to follow them in the first place and using our cameras as more of a means of creative exploration and, and expression. You know, you write in the book and you say, what pulls me to this work is the purity of expression. It's elegant. And, you know, that really struck me because I think so much about photography is so much about the literal. That while there is some voice given to this idea of, of, of the medium being sort of expressive, it's often so tied into being more rooted in the, in the, in the literal. And while there may be some opportunities to be expressive, it seems like it's it's sort of a secondary thing. Why do you why do you think that is? Is it is it that is that photography is so rooted in this sort of technical process that it's hard for people to, to move beyond that? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I think we have a history of um, of documentation, and there since the you know the very beginning people have said things like the camera never lies so there's this sense of objectivity um, the camera is very good at certain things technically it, it is very good at recording moments and that sort of thing and um, and yet you know while on one hand people say you know the best photographs tell a story um, and I'm certainly on board with that that many of the best photographs tell a story storytelling is not the only way that we can use a camera we can use a camera to um, to to write a poem if we're comparing the two genres, then then the the type of photography that I'm encouraging in this particular book, even if you never do this kind of photography seriously, if it's just for the creative exercise of understanding the full range, the full gamut of what your your technical tools can do. But in, in this particular book, I'm talking more about photography as its potential for poetry instead of just telling an accurate uh, story with, you know, literal, um, the, you know, the value of the moment and, and composition is still very important. All of this sort of things that make a great photograph are still important, but they're used in maybe even a, a more lighthearted way, a more playful way. And I think anytime that we can encourage that playfulness and uh, that lightheartedness in our creativity, we are open to discovering new techniques. If, even again, if you never use this kind of, you never put this kind of photograph in your portfolio, I think it helps us understand our tools and the possibilities for expression that maybe we didn't, ex we haven't explored before. I was in Paris about, I think it was about two, maybe three years ago. And it was the first opportunity where I got to see a large collection of the Flemish painters and the way that they use, use light and particularly the approach of, uh, and I always have trouble pronouncing this word, uh, Gioscuro, 
in which they really sort of embrace mm-hmm. the presence of shadow in the frame. And I looked at those photographs. It was, it was really revelatory for me because it was a, it was, it was a sensibility that I always approached in my photography. But it was amazing to see it in paintings that were hundreds of years old and how they not only were sensitive to the the, the presence of light and shadow, but that they were using it to express something of their of their subjects. That it wasn't just a, an idea of okay, let's place the light here and get this sort of shadow. That it was so in tune with what they wanted to say and express in themselves. And it just gave me an appreciation not only for painting, but for photography, for what it can be. And for you, when you take a look at your work, how easy or how difficult is it for you to sort of embrace that part of it, of using light, of using all the technology and the means that you have in in your hand, to be able to take a moment and to be able to to express something with it that goes beyond being able to create a really technically adept photograph that's that's beautiful, that's well composed, but that is infused with something about who you are and the way you see and the way you felt when you saw that scene. Well, it's uh, I think the the answer to that question depends entirely on on the kind of day I'm having. Some days it's profoundly difficult, and some days it's uh, it's entirely accidental, and it happens very easily. And I, I think. When you can get to a point where you, where you're comfortable enough with your camera, then instead of thinking about buttons and dials and and that sort of thing, you are thinking about the use of shadow and light. Like you said, that that you know maybe it's chiaroscuro, maybe it's you know just you're thinking about shadow as as a compositional device or or how colors work. But ultimately, and you know I've been an advocate for in. in intentional photography for a long time and that the reason I I like looking at some of these painters the Flemish painters the post-impressionists that sort of thing um, is is because they made these they made these very intentional decisions you know they were responsible for everything that went onto the canvas and I think sometimes we with the camera we think we have the luxury of just kind of pressing the button and letting things letting the chips fall where they may uh, which I suppose is one approach, but we also have the ability with these tools to be so very selective about what goes in and what stays out of our frame and um, how we use colors. Now with the the tools that we have for post-production, we have just an astonishing ability to create out of raw materials like time and light, create these uh, these things that are not only perhaps documentary, but also really expressive. I don't see why the two necessarily have to be separate. And you see this in a great example is wedding photography, where the best wedding photographers are not merely documenting an event. They're documenting an event and doing so in an expressive way. And I think if we can encourage photographers, especially learning photographers, to see photography not only as a technical pursuit, but a creative artistic expressive pursuit that is accomplished through technical means then I think we have the best of both worlds you know I've, I've long argued for that we should sort of many photographers I think are kind of schizophrenic and and uh, they kind of bounce all over the place but I think if you can embrace the reality that as photographers most of us have the potential to be both the, the artist and the geek mm-hmm. and I think the best possible place for us in terms of creative expression is when both of those things are nourished, both of those things are are kind of uh, integrated with each other, rather than it being purely, you know, an artistic endeavor with with no excellence of craft or 
purely, um, you know, purely a, an exercise in geekery where there's no thought given to expression and, and that sort of thing. Do you find that the, the exploration of, of, of abstraction, you know, particularly in the world of, of macro close-up photography, where you basically take the elements that make up an object or a person and you just sort of pare it down into the, the basic elements is sort of a, a good way of being able to sort of explore it and move beyond the sort of traditional way of approaching uh, seeing and photographing? I do. I, I love abstraction. Um, and and though I doubt it will ever be sort of, you know, I don't, I don't think people will know me as an abstract photographer. Um, but for me, it's an exercise in learning to see in a different way and kind of look at things very obliquely. And when you put on a, a, a really strong macro lens and get in so close that that the particularity of a subject, you know, you're looking at a the petals of a flower, but the petals, the flower, it really, you're so close that the flower is no more. It's just, you know, reds and blues and, and it's the purest possible visual experience. And again, I don't know that I will ever become known as an abstract photographer. I'm not even sure it's something I want, but, but as a creative exercise to learn to see, because that's the job of the photographer. The, the job of a photographer is not to use a camera. Um, almost anyone can figure out how to use a camera and over a few years actually become quite good at it. The job of the photographer is to be present and observant and to see things in a different way. And so when you push a macro lens in so close or you rack the focus out to infinity when you're only inches away, um, the, the sharp edges uh, disappear and you end up with something completely different. It's not a literal representation of reality. It's just pure form and play and exploration. And I think when you don't take yourself so seriously, you know, all these issues of things being so perfectly sharp and all of that, when you can separate yourself from that, um, that I think, at least in my own experience, that's when the creativity comes out and Kids, just just like um, just like children, uh, photographers learn best when we play. We talk about you know practice makes perfect. Well, I think actually, while practice is important, it's play that allows us to discover and to truly learn. And so, none of us are above learning. I think even when you've been doing this for 25, 30 years, you need experiences where you learn new things, see the world in a different way. And so, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is this sense that photographers, we're just sort of hitting the tip of the iceberg. And if you can get beneath the water and explore and play, I think that makes all your photographic endeavors that much stronger. I think one of the, the, the challenges of faced by someone want to explore that is, is this huge obstacle we have in terms of way, our way of thinking of what a good photograph is supposed to look like. We have it sort of drilled in us what a good exposure is supposed to look like, what a degree of sharpness, contrast, composition. And I know that when I've played around with the camera, just go, just to just to see what happens, uh, regardless of how long I've been shooting and how much knowledge I have in my brain, sometimes I'm I'm at a loss to understand. Not only uh, if the image is working or not, but more importantly, if the image is working, being able to quantify why it works. And it seems I'm just relegated more to that sort of gut visceral reaction to the image than I am when I'm looking at a traditional photograph. And I, and I kind of struggle sometimes with trying to sort of jive those two ways of thinking uh, with, with, you know, with those kinds of photograph. If, 
I'm sure I'm not the only one, but how how do you end up sort of finding a sort of a happy medium when it comes to that way of, you know, way of thinking? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm probably like you. I, I, I struggle too. But just as in some of the more interesting photographs, there there is a um, that balance in the photograph is achieved through tension between two elements. I I think that's what's interesting to me in in life and and in this conversation. It's not that I'm looking for a happy medium. I'm actually looking for something interesting that comes out of the tension between the two and how can you combine the purely expressive if such a thing exists and the purely technical and i i i think the most interesting photographs are the ones where the two kind of meet and play and something unexpected happens and one of the things that doesn't get talked about very often in photography because we do so mire ourselves in this technical stuff is the question of experience what kind of experience not not a transference of information. What kind of experience are we creating in the people that are reading our photographs? And, you know, the, this, this book, The Visual Imagination, uh, the reason it came, came up as a, an idea was I, a couple of years ago, you and I have talked about this accident I had in Italy, um, and I was in a wheelchair for a while, and, and my, uh, my girlfriend, Cynthia, came and picked me up at the hospital, and we went for a day trip to the, uh, to the National Gallery in Ottawa. And I sat in front of some uh, really beautiful, some of my favorite kind of Canadian post-impressionists. And there was this one, photo, uh, one painting of uh, a, a landscape that it was, it was so moving to me in terms of experience. I felt like I could feel the, the wind on my you know, on the, on the hair of the back of my hands, I felt like I, I knew exactly what temperature that sunlight was and, and I could smell. And it was like a multi-sensory kind of experience based on memory and that sort of thing. And I, I sat there looking at it and I thought, my God, how could I, how can I incorporate or create that kind of experience with my photography? And I, and I'm still sort of asking myself that because I don't know that the answer is actually that interesting. I think the question is probably the most interesting thing because it keeps kind of coming up with new possibilities. So for me, the question is what kind of experience are we creating both for ourselves in terms of seeing the world in new ways and that sort of thing, but also in our work, what kind of experience are we creating for people that look at it just like they might read a poem and be moved maybe they don't even know why they're being moved maybe it's just this the two particular colors that you've put together that they look at and go you know what that's i don't even care if it's a painting or a photograph i want to put that on my wall and look at it every day because of how it makes me feel and i and i think that is as i said earlier you know is the best story is the best photograph one with story well it might be but sometimes the best photograph may just be one that has a strong sense of the poetic and deeply moves you, even though there's no transference of information. You don't actually, you're not telling anyone this. You're just going, look at how these two colors play together. And doesn't it remind you of something from your childhood or falling in love or whatever? These are deep human things that we long for and experience. And, and I would love to see, even in our more literal work, I would love to see a uh, a consciousness of this kind of how do we make a a deeper, truer, um, whatever kind of experience you want to create for the people that are looking at your photographs.
And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. If you're a photographer that enjoys keeping track of traffic to your site, whether it's associated with a new sales promotion or a marketing effort, you'll enjoy Squarespace's metrics for the iPhone. With its fluid design and powerful inspection tools, you have ready access to valuable performance indicators and interactive characters, all in a beautiful and clean interface. The effectiveness of your website is always just a finger stroke away. But even if you're not an iPhone user, you'll find a lot to love with Squarespace easy design interface that makes your site look great on any device, regardless of platform. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just have fun with it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Yeah, one of the uh, photographers whose work you include in the book is Tom McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really like the work because it's it's rooted in a reality, but there's a certain sense of the surreal. So, while certain elements in there are fairly obvious what they are, what the way he chooses to photograph them adds a sense of sort of um, a mystery, a sense of the surreal. It really forces you to really think about what those things are. And, you know, we talked about earlier about the, the fact that we were so literal in what we photograph, but by simply just making some very different technical choices, he really, really makes us reconsider what we're looking at, even the most common elements in our world. And, and I think that's, I, I love work like that, work that makes me to sort of take a step back at something that may have been so common and so obvious to me and makes me rethink it. Mm. It, it, I I totally agree. And I think, again, it comes back to that notion of experience. What kind of experience are we creating for people? And to go back to the idea of storytelling, some of the very best stories have an element of mystery in them. And it's, I I liken it to, you know, people will come back from a movie and say, you ask them how it was, and they say, oh, it was really good, but it wasn't nearly as good as the book. Well, of course, it's not nearly as good as the book. When you when you watch a movie, you're you're not asking the mind uh, to imagine things. You're, the the image is projected onto the screen. Whereas when you read a book, you have to conjure it up, and and it's it's much more engaging. And so I think you know, in the example of Tom McLaughlin's work, I will look at some. He has one that he photographed of like a steel post. With a, with a red background and then just kind of flipped it on its side and it sort of kind of looks like a sunset, you know, mm-hmm. like a steel yeah. blue ocean against a red sunset. And and when you're looking at it and asking yourself, even though it doesn't, uh, deciphering the puzzle doesn't, I think, uh, add to your experience, you will still be asking yourself, what is it? And that engagement and that, that sense of puzzle or ambiguity uh, will create a longer, more lasting experience for the person looking at the photograph than if they just look at it and go, oh, yeah, it's a steel post against a red background, and then, then they move on because there's nothing there that's hooking their, their imagination or their sense of puzzle. You know? did, did you find that your, your initial forays into this work were the result of these accidents that can happen when we make mistakes in terms of the, the way we're working with the camera and then something's revealed to us that really kind of surprises us. And then that ends up lead to, leading to more thoughtful accidents. 
Oh, all the time. I, um, you know, I, I, in this work, especially I, when I'm sort of just playing, I, I use the word exploration quite intentionally because I, I will go out and, and I'll find something that intrigues me and I'll move my camera around at different shutter speeds and I'll look at the trails of light and sort of the, the, the to compare it to painting, you know, the paint strokes. And, and I'll look at it and I thought, oh my gosh, I never, I, I never imagined that. What, what happens if I do this? Or what if I do that? And that's sort of the question I think that's at the root of all creativity is, is that asking what if. And even though the results are completely unexpected, you look at it and you go, oh, that's really cool. What if I do this? Combine it with this. What if I slow down the shutter or I, you know, turn the camera and do it vertically instead of horizontally, whatever that is. I think that sense of exploration and that willingness to ask what if leads to leads to new accidents that that eventually become sort of predictable in terms of techniques. And it may take sort of 100 frames to get the exact kind of motion. If you're using intentional camera motion, it may take a little bit of work with with a macro lens to become sort of to to sense how that tool is going to translate reality. And uh, but at the heart of all of it, it's just exploration. And, and most photographers, I think, don't give enough credit to the accidental in our work. You know, even when you're doing literal work and you're out on the, the streets, you can anticipate moments. But the reality is, if whether that moment comes or does not come in the, sen- in the way that you expect it, in, in some sense, it's all accidental. So, but how do you sort of quantify between those happy accidents where you get something cool as a result of some sort of you know, playfulness or, or accident, and then segueing that into a more purposeful, purposeful approach where you're actually accumulating a series of images that in one way or another are making sense, that, that, that have a thoughtful voice, even though you're really working with a certain level of unpredictability? That's a good question. I, I think, you know, I, I think the more you experiment and play, the more at least the more predictably chaotic the process becomes. And yes, it may take you seven or eight frames to get the exact thing you want. But when you, for example, I, you know, I, I, will, I have a series that I photographed last year in the autumn in the Yukon, and we went up to northern Canada to photograph specifically the, the change of colors. Um, in fact, the, the cover of the book, Visual Imagination, comes from that trip. My, my girlfriend and partner, uh, Cynthia, made that photograph and and it's not purely accidental we don't stick the camera out of the car window while we're driving and just you know mash the shutter button and hope we get something there there is a sense of i see the scene in front of me i see the colors i'm moved by these as raw materials now let's see if we can abstract them uh, let's see if we can make something that's more impressionist uh, to focus in on those emotions and feelings that we get from the forms and the colors. And so it's not purely a, a accidental process. It is a, an informed process that you practice. And over time, I think you can, yes, there's still an element of, of chaos to it. But even then, if you take 50 photographs using your practiced technique and then part of your process is now I go into the edit and I'm sitting at the light box or you know sitting in Lightroom and I'm looking at these photographs that too is part of the intentional process of creating your images which photograph of the seven eight fifty whatever frames that you made which one best um, expresses that 
scene, that mood, whatever you're trying to capture. Um, and it's the same, I think, in post-production. There, there are people that will, like, for example, John Paul Caponegro is featured in the book, and he does a lot of his work in post-production. And, um, and I don't think that just because we, we gather our raw materials in camera and then do something with them in post, I don't think that that makes it any less um, intentional. It's just a different different way of approaching the process, I think. Yeah, and John Paul is, is remarkable in that in that way because he is sort of, for lack of a better word, hypersensitive to the technology that exists to us as digital photographers, and he and not only he embraces it, but he takes it to levels where a lot of people don't think to do it. I know that a lot of people have you know incorporated you know, compositing images and melding things like that. But it seems like one of the things that's always struck me about his photographs is that so much of that is, 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 is influenced by his own thoughtfulness, thoughtfulness, but, but it looks like he's always trying to, trying to figure an answer to a question that he's posed to himself. Uh, and, and that's the way I've always sort of read read those images because they always pique my interest, not just because visually, but because I'm always finding myself asking questions. Is that your experience or, or do you find that your experience is images in a completely different way? No, it's it's exactly my experience. And, and on a broader scale, I, I sort of approach art for whatever else art also is. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But for me, art is very much about asking questions and the, the fact that it leads us to one answer one week and then a different answer the next week is almost beside the point. It's the, it's the honoring of those questions and the process of discovery, I think, that is important. So absolutely, I look at, at JP's work and, and some of it, um, some of it isn't kind of my sort of thing. It's certainly not the kind of work that I would create, but I have a, a huge admiration for his, his willingness to play with possibilities rather than be hemmed in by, you know, the purists who say a photograph should be this or should be that. I mean, it's art of, of all the fields of endeavor of humankind. I would think art would be the freest from, from rules. Um, they, in fact, I think there's a quote at the beginning of the book from Kandinsky that says, there is no must in art because art is free. And, and I get a real sense of that from JP's work. There, there is, he feels, I think, no obligation to create the work that other people think he should create or, or to create within the constraints that they think, you know, well, this is actually not a photograph. It's more like digital art. Well, who, who cares what we call it? The fact is, what is the experience that you're creating for both yourself as an artist and for those that are looking at, reading, experiencing your art, photograph, digital, composite, whatever you want to call it. You know, it seems like as human beings, we have become accustomed to adhering to rules, at least most of us. And uh, especially when it comes to the art of photography, I think that's especially the case because it's always the question of, am I doing this right? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I using the camera in the way that I should be doing as well as Photoshop and, and so on and, and so forth? So it's, it can be very difficult to sort of break free from that. And, and even though photography should be as freeing and liberating as any other art of manage, manageable, it seems like it's one of the arts where those restrictions are an especially, an especially burden. So, how do you help people to be able to get past that, to be able to 
be willing to play because it seems like we've, you know, as adults, we've, we've been ingrained and taught to sort of uh, let that stuff go for the most part and leave, leave that kind of thinking and acting to the more bohemian and eclectic of us. Sure. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, in answer to your question, I think it's a, it's the reason I wrote this particular ebook and, and B um, specifically, I think, I think you almost have to trick people. And I don't mean that in sort of a malicious um, kind of way. I, I mean it in the way that, you know, good teachers will give a student an exercise and the, the student has no sense of what's coming out of that. Uh, but in the process of doing that exercise, they discover something. And, and in the case of the visual imagination, really, I, I wrote it and put the, you know, sort of curated it with the images that are in there. Because what I, I mean, it's not rocket science. None of this is rocket science. What I'm hoping people will do is they will pick it up and they will do the exercises and they will play. And that, even if they're looking at it as kind of a technical exercise, I'm going to learn how to use my camera with longer shutter speeds and moving subjects and isolation and all these techniques. My hope is that once they begin playing with it, they will get sort of sucked down the rabbit hole of play and exploration and fun and realize that, yes, I mean, in the process of doing so, you are learning about your tools. You're learning about how lenses work and, and you're learning about color and all of these sort of things. But you're, you're doing it sort of almost un, unconsciously because you're, you're playing. And with any luck, some of, the, some of the people that maybe tend towards the, the geekier side of this uh, craft will, will have their eyes open and see, you know, maybe not everything has to be perfectly sharp. Maybe people can be moved. Maybe I can create something interesting that hasn't got a single element of sharpness to it. And, and, and I think really all you can do is kind of lead the horse to water. And when they start drinking, they realize, my God, I, I was thirstier than I realized. Probably that's the only thing that we can do as teachers. But if we can make it fun and if we can, uh, if we can create exercises that are, you know, for the people that do it because they love the technique and the technology, then we create exercises that encourage them to use that technology and explore those techniques but to do so in a way that's a little bit outside the box and kind of once they get outside the box a little, they realize maybe it's not so scary. Mm. So how is your, your willingness to explore the world through a camera in this particular way helped you when you're doing more, for lack of a better word, more straightforward photography? Does, does it lead you to make very different choices as a result? Not necessarily using these techniques of camera movement or blur or stuff like that in order to make a visually interesting photograph. But in terms of creating a very different experience in terms of recognizing a moment or a person or, or a scene that you otherwise might've been completely oblivious to before. Yeah, I think, I mean, if the question is specifically to what I've, I've learned and how I'm translating it in my work, it has helped me um, pay much more careful attention to the fundamentals of composition. And so one of the things that I bring out in the book is you, you would think that if all you're doing is 
for example, with intentional camera movement, you're flailing your camera around with the shutter open, you, you would think that composition was less important. But in fact, I think it's more important because you don't have the kind of the, the, the cheap parlor trick of just some very sharply focused subject that on their own is kind of interesting and seductive. Now all you have is color and balance and, and tension and, you know, harmony and, and shape. That's all you have. And so as a result, you have to pay more attention to it. So when I'm doing more intentional work, I think, I think my compositions are becoming not only more intentional, but simple without being simplistic. Because it, it, my contention has always been that, you know, one photograph can only do so much. And I think if you can, if you can make that composition as simple as possible so that the thing that that photograph does is as powerful as possible, I think then we will have made a step forward in our ability to make photographic images. So that's where I see it most directly in, in my more literal work and my travel work and humanitarian stuff. It has given me a, a deeper awareness of color, the way colors have worked together, the way shapes work together. And I, I now look at my compositions with a much more uh, critical but playful eye. I'm more willing to entertain the the idea of breaking the rules because playing with all this has made me realize that they're really this notion of you got to know the rules before you can break it mm -hmm. uh, or break the rules. I, I don't even subscribe to that. I, I truly do not believe there are any rules. I do strongly believe in principles. I believe that there are certain ways people read photographs. I believe that there are certain elements of craft that need to be um, at least learned, but I, I still don't believe they're rules. And, and so but because I've created photographs that break every rule, you know, so-called rule. And, and if you can have a collection of photographs that break every rule, then there are no, and who are these people that are making these rules? I mean, was it Ansel Adams? Was it, who, who are, who are they, the police of photography that are making rules? I just truly don't believe they're there. And that's why I love the, the impressionists because they, and, and photo, photography and impressionism actually have very similar roots roots and, and affected one another because they were so sort of irreverent and um, immediate. And, and so for me to be able to, to not only distance myself from rules, but to reject them altogether, not rejecting the principles of what makes strong photographs, but focusing more on what kind of experience can I create for the people looking at my photographs, whether they're more abstract or more literal, I think has given me, one, I enjoy the process a lot more, but I think my photographs are still, I think they're getting stronger. And maybe that's something that I will only be able to tell in a few years when I look back with a little more uh, objectivity. But I, I think that's sort of the, the effect that this work is having on me. Education today is about value and lynda.com provides that. Its courses on photography, video, business, illustration, and so much more provide a range of courses that might only be found at a local college. It's not just a site for photography, it's a resource to help you develop skills that can help you make the most of your free time so that you can practice what you're passionate about. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's L Y N D A.com 
forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and support the show. You know, you're you're a great photographer. I love love your work. And one of the things that happens when you've been shooting for a while and you've created a body of work, there's a certain level of confidence that goes along with it. So though you can be subject to a certain degree of, of criticism for for the work. Um, you know, you kind of develop a sort of a thin skin because you go, you can look at your body of work and, and take any of that with sort of a grain of salt. But when you start experimenting, you start exploring completely different territory, which is unfamiliar, where where you know, your feet are not rooted in in you know, in sort of that body of confirmation. Um, how do you, how have you, and how do you sort of contend with, you know, the, the natural insecurity and self-doubt that can give rise when you are, you know, when you're walking off of that, un, that known path into completely sort of unfamiliar territory? I think a lot of it just has to do with the amount of time that I've been, that I've been doing my work. But increasingly, if, if the point of what I'm doing is to make photographs that make me happy, then yes, of course, I very much would like it if other people are happy as well. Uh, if if it creates an experience in them that you know that moves them somehow. But increasingly, I and this sounds flippant and glib, and I don't mean it to be, but I just don't care. I, I yes, I want them to someone to love my stuff, but I create my work honestly just to make myself happy, to see the world in a different way, and I think I have high enough standards that. I know when my photograph has has failed, um, and I, I still have people in my life that that are photographers I look up to that I will bring my work to them and say, "What do you think?" And um, so there are there are peers that I still sort of uh, subject my work to, and because I respect them. But in terms of putting my work out there, I think we'd be crazy if we allowed the opinions of others to to shape our work because. I mean, you ask 100 photo photographers what they think of one photograph and you're going to get 100 opinions. So of those 100 opinions, which one do you listen to? I, it's a it's shooting at a moving target. So, I mean, easier said than done. Of course, we we're, we're so personally invested in our work that when you get a scathing review or someone says something, especially someone that you respect, says something sort of harsh about your work, pretty, pretty hard to swallow. But Again, you know, I think Zach Arias was the one that said it at one point. He said, you know, we're not curing cancer here. We're, we're creating art and arts and exploration. And sometimes that exploration doesn't go the way we expected. And I, I think you have to approach your work with enough humility that when, you know, in hindsight, you realize now this isn't my best work. That's fine. But it, it may lead you to your best work. Not every sketch we make has to come out and become a masterpiece at the end of our career, at the end of our lives, if we can look back and say, you know, I did work that I loved, I enjoyed the process, and I made some, some art, uh, however you define that, I made some art that was important to some people, most of all myself. Um, again, I, I, it's, it sounds a little easier said than done, and sometimes it is, but I, I do think you can sort of lead your audience or, or they can lead you. And I just don't know of all those hundred voices that are going to have a hundred different opinions. I don't know which one to listen to. So I've sort of opted to, to kind of listen to my own voice first and then let that be, let me, that be the voice that I, you know, that guides me. 
Um, and that's, you know, that sounds kind of hippie, new agey, bohemian, but I think ultimately, I don't know what the choice is. You know, you develop that thick skin and you, you do the best work you can and some, you know, but there, Seth Godin said an interesting thing when he was writing about, you know, kind of how we create art out of our lives. And he said, you know, this, this could lead to tears. He said, <laughs> if, if you're not willing to dance and cry about your, about your work, I'm not sure it's art. So there are going to be times when, yeah, it's just hard and, and it falls short. It doesn't meet your standards and that never mind everyone else's. So there are going to be times when it's just going to be hard. You're going to look at your work and go, yeah, this is, is not good. And you're going to be frustrated about how do I get it from here to where I expected. That's, that's the journey of being a, an artist or a craftsman. You know, it's just sometimes it's hard. And, and art is, as, as you pointed out, you know, it's more about those questions and, as long as you're willing to keep asking them, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, because I think there are a few things more maddening than discovering that you've been in the same place and trying to find the means of being able to get out of it. Uh, it's it's so easy that once you become adept at, at some, some art or a particular type of photography that you know you can pull out the camera and you can make that good photograph over and over again. But I think that at least for myself, just speaking for myself, there comes a moment where even that can be the most frustrating, frustrating, maddening, disappointing part about being a photographer. And the struggle comes is, is not just merely finding another outlet for it, but being willing to let go of those things that have become so familiar and so intuitive that they're actually holding me holding me back. And one of the things I liked about the book is that it really kind of speaks to that, that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, blood, sweat, and tears in order to make that transition, but more willingness to be able to put some of those old things aside and just say, let me just try this one thing a little differently today. Let me, let me shoot it an eighth of a second. Let me move the camera. Let me use my phone and not, and just, just, shake it in the air while I'm making the exposure and just, and just see what happens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's surprising that sometimes I kind of need to read something like that to gain that permission, but whether I get it from a book or from somewhere else, it it really is an important part of being a a photographer and being able to sustain one's sanity and creativity over a long period of time. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've probably said it somewhere else. Um, well, I know I have. The, the the line between what makes a you know a creative groove when we're we're experiencing flow, um, and and so the line between that and just being in a rut, um, <laughs> it's it's perilously thin at times. You know, and and that's just sort of the way it is. And one day you wake up and you think you're in a groove and everything's good, and the mo- next morning you realize, no, I'm. I'm well and truly stuck in a rut. And so, you know, if a book like this or, or whatever it is can get people pushed a little outside of their, their ruts, you know, sometimes it, when you're in a good deep rut, it takes a little bit of work to get out of it. It takes something very different to get out of it. I don't know that it's a lot of work, but I think it takes something, um, you know, like steering the steering wheel in, in a completely different direction just to kind of hop that rut and get into a, a space where there's no groove, there's no rut, it's just fresh territory. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've, you've written several books, and you, you're one of the best writers on photography that I know. I, I just Sometimes I just enjoy just letting the words roll off of my tongue. 
me and uh, Jeffrey Sidoris are in complete agreement in terms of how much we love just reading your words. And thank you. And and one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, there's a certain thoughtfulness that you have to have as a as a writer, particularly when you're writing about another art form. And I wonder that over the course of the many books that you've written, what sort of insights and revelations have you gained about your own process just as a result of having to put words on that blank blank piece of paper? Oh, that's a great question. I, uh, I could talk about that all day uh, because it's, it actually has been probably one of the more f- profounder shifts for me is going from going from a f- being a photographer to being in many ways a, um, a writer who makes photographs. Um, the, the writing process is, I think by nature of it, just has to be more intentional and, or at least you're aware of how much more intentional it is. And the more I have written, the more I've realized that actually photography is not that different. It can be as intentional as, as writing. But, um, you know, when you, when you sit down to write, you, you, don't just, you don't just have an idea and then write it down. You, you write it down to discover that idea. And so it may take three or four drafts before you realize exactly what you're trying to say and how you best want to say that. And the same thing with photography. I think it has given me the freedom to, to you know, to, com- to compare it to writing. It's given me the freedom to write some really bad first drafts and not <laughs> feel like, you know, every frame I make has to be gold. I, I fill my hard drives with total, absolute crap and... And, and I'm, I'm not saying that, be, you know, with false humility, I, anyone looking at my crap would agree that it is just total crap, but it is, I don't look at those hundred frames or however many frames it's taken me to get something solid, uh, as a starting point, I, I, I don't look at them as junk. I don't look at them as, I mean, I, to be self-deprecating, I certainly often call them junk and crap, but the reality is they're sketches and, and they, they lead me just like bad ideas lead to good ideas if you don't let this sort of inner sensor get in the way. My so-called bad photographs uh, lead me to better work. And so in that sense, are they bad? Well, no, they're necessary. They're just, they're the lubrication on the cogs of the wheels that get me to where I need to be. So I, I think by writing, which is a much more intentional and kind of, you know, often sort of, um, uh, it's a more introspective process. Um, but I, I don't think while I thought of writing as a separate discipline from photography initially, it's actually very much the same thing. I now approach my photography much more intentionally with greater freedom to create rough drafts and sketch images and know that the junk is just, that's the price of admission, you know? And I think, I think people need to, to hear that. I think people as, especially beginning photographers need to understand that, um, not only, are your first 10,000 frames your worst, but they are the, they are the most necessary. Uh, it's not like you just got to get through them. If you get through them too fast, you're not going to learn the lessons that takes, it takes for your next 10,000 not to be also total crap. <laughs> so, you know, I, we need to respect process a little more as photographers. I think we expect that because our cameras are so capable that we can just sort of mail it in sometimes. Yeah. And I think, I think it's very rare that the photographers that we all look up to and respect 
it's very rare that the images that we look at in their portfolio is iconic. Those didn't come out as, you know, the first one out of the gate. Those took not only did they take immediately probably a dozen, two dozen or a hundred frames to get to, but in terms of the body, like the lifetime of that artist, they took years and years and years to get to. So probably, uh, probably lightening up a little bit for most photographers and, and giving ourselves permission to create those really crappy first drafts would probably be really good for all of us. Probably helpful, healthy. Yeah, good advice there. You know, the, the summer's coming up, so it's a big time for people to go out and take workshops. And I know that you do your share, your, your fair share of teaching yourself. But if, if you were going to go out and you were going to take a workshop, what, what would be something that you would really be hoping for that you would feel like, you know, this is something that I need to know before I, I, I make the investment in it? Because there's so many workshops that teach very similar uh, technical information, composition, lighting, how to photograph people, how to photograph wildlife, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. But from your perspective, if you were the, if you were in the one in the market and you're trying to, you know, mull through all the different people who are making all these promises of what you're going to experience over mm. a weekend or a, or a week, what would David Duchemin want to see or hear that would make him think, this is the place that I need to be. This is where I need to spend my time that will allow me to grow and become a better photographer. Well, I think people take workshops for different reasons. I, certainly, if that workshop were in a place that I otherwise couldn't get to myself and they were therefore providing access or itineration that I couldn't do myself, I, that would be of great value to me. But I would, I would look to find something that is pushing me so far or pulling me so far out of my current comfort level. And so I would, you know, I would love to go and do like Jay Mizell's workshop because it's honestly, it scares the hell out of me. Um, the idea of going and submitting myself to someone that I respect as much as I respect Jay, something like that, who I, I would go and I would learn from someone that I, let's face it, it, technically most of these workshops aren't teaching anything new. My, I mean, we don't really do workshops so much as kind of adventure photography trips where we just take people to different places but you know we tell people re read your camera manual before we come before you come because we're not going to teach you how to use your camera we will certainly be there to help with technical things if you need it but most of these workshops the the value that you can get is connecting with a a person that you respect in terms of their artistry in terms of their discipline in terms of whatever it is that you respect about them you know, people spend a lot of money on these workshops and and you don't need to show up at a workshop to learn how to use your camera. You can do that for free at home. I, I would say find someone that you respect and that you know you're going to get to spend time with. So go in a, the smallest group you can find. If you're going with, you know, this iconic photographer who's shot for National Geographic for years and you're only going to be one of 30 people and you're not going to get to spend any time with the photographer and have a meal with them and drink a glass of wine with them, then I think you're, you have to ask why you're spending all of that money because you can learn to use a camera, as I said, back home for free. So I would say, you know, find, find the workshop that's going to give you the best personal connection because that's where you're going to learn from that person that you respect so much. That's where you're going to learn the most is sitting down over a meal, shooting side by side with them, having the freedom to ask questions. Um, if, if you can if you can find that small workshop where there's you and seven other people 
and the photographer that you want to spend a week with, you, you probably get, and we all learn differently. So that, that would be how I would approach things. Find something that you're, you just, you can't get anywhere else. Mm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one other photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired and someone you've recently discovered. And it can be anyone. So who would that one person be and why? That is a very easy to qu- easy question for me to answer right now. The, uh, the UPS guy just showed up with my latest book from Amazon. I order, on average, a couple of photography books. I don't mean like, you know, the kind of stuff I write about photography, but books of actual photographs. And uh, the latest book that came through was one from a photographer named Saul Leiter. And um, it's, I believe his last name is L-E-I-T-E-R, although I suppose it could be L-I-E. But um, Saul Leiter is, uh, he passed away this, this past year. And his, his stuff is just exceptional. His composition's amazing. He also was a painter, and so it ties in nicely to this conversation. But the, the stuff that he, in his, just purely speaking from his, the photography, is, is really beautiful. There is a sense of playfulness. There's uh, an incredible use of color. His compositions are simple and strong. Um, I think, honestly, any, any photographer that doesn't, especially photographers that photograph in color, any photographer that hasn't at least looked at and become familiar with Saul Leiter's work, um, it's like a, it's like being a photojournalist that's you know not familiar with um, someone like Elliot Erwitt, you know, whose sense of a moment is so strong. Um, he's one of the, the good guys, and he, he just he got so little press. He was actually quite happy being pretty unknown for most of his life. So go out and, and take a look at Saul Leiter. Um, his stuff's a little harder to find. I had to wait four weeks to get a book from the book warehouse in the UK um, via Amazon. So it took a little time, but uh, his stuff is just gorgeous. Yeah, wonderful photographer. And there's a documentary of uh, of him um, circulating right now in the film festival circuit, but hopefully the sooner rather than later, we'll have an opportunity to, to, to see it either in a local theater or on a DVD or on video on demand, because I am very much looking forward to, to, to seeing that film. But uh, where can people find out more about you, the book and everything else that you're doing? Well, the book launches, um, let me see the book launches on, uh, on this coming Monday, whatever that is. Uh, and I realize I, <laughs> that's not helpful. Um, uh, today's the eighth when we record this, right? So anyway, it's, there's, uh, it's available on craftandvision.com, and, uh, for the first week after it releases, there's a discount code and you can get the book instead of for $10, you can get it for $7 and 50 cents. If you use the discount code express 25, uh, that'll get you $2 and 50 cents off the price of the book at craftandvision.com. Everything else you can find me at daviddusheman.com. Thank you, man. It's always, always a pleasure. Thanks for uh, making making the time for me. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. 
The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.